0: morning, chapter 11. And we are starting a new sermon series this morning that will take us through a couple of months uh, this summer uh, called Worship for Weary Souls, Communal Habits and Daily Rhythms of Grace. Shout out to Nate Huff for putting together this sermon artwork. It's pretty good. Uh, And uh, so, yeah, we are excited to start this today in connection with our Uh, starting of the Daily Prayer Project. Um, Well, in her uh, magnificent book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, which I will probably quote several times throughout the summer, um, Tish Harrison Warren quotes from author Annie Dillard in making the case for the importance of small daily habits. Annie Dillard says this, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. This is... Uh, obvious, but it is really going to be the theme uh, a statement for how we walk through this sermon series. We're going to be asking questions over the next several months about our communal habits as a church and our daily individual rhythms, and asking about how those habits and rhythms shape us, how they form us as people. In uh, when I when I do premarital counseling, I tell couples. That great marriages are built on a thousand little things. And similarly, marriages fall apart on a thousand little things. This, I believe, is also true for the Christian life. Christian formation is built on a thousand little things or falls apart on a thousand little things. We often think that becoming a better Christian is really hard and available only to a select few Christians, super Christians. Well, my hope is to lay out for you today and throughout this whole sermon series is that the Christian life and Christian formation, that is our Christian character being formed and us being uh, becoming more and more like Jesus, is both far easier than we think and far more difficult than we think. It's both at the same time, right? It's far easier in that the actual practices that will form us into being the people that God wants us to be, those actual practices and habits that are required to grow, we're gonna see are actually very simple. Or to use the words of Jesus, as we'll see this morning, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Now, however, it's far more difficult for us to put into practice, namely because we seek, to add the yoke of Jesus, to add this, these habits of being formed as a Christian, we seek to add these to our daily life rather than actually exchange what we're currently doing for what Jesus calls us to. We seek to do everything that we're currently doing and that the world is teaching us how to be formed, and we just want to add a little Jesus in. We just want to, rather than uh, simply transforming our lives completely to be in line with Jesus, which is really like trying to train for the Olympics by adding one super intense two-hour workout a week while not changing anything else about your life, not changing your diet or your sleeping or your entertainment intake or anything else. Just adding a bit of Olympic training does not make you an Olympic athlete. It's not going to work. So what we have to actually do is think about, hey, how do we think about our daily rhythms in life? How do we actually think that we will be transformed to be more and more like Jesus? But I want to give you fair warning. This sermon series is designed to both free you and challenge you. If we embrace this path as a congregation, your life will be altered. Our life together will be altered. As a community of faith, we will be challenged to be changed. Because what we're talking about is really a total transformation of our daily life. Now, here's the thing that sounds challenging for sure. But I want to ask you at the start of this series how's your current approach going? How's it going? Are you weary? Are you wearied by the way the world seeks to shape and form you? Are you wearied by the way you spend time with Jesus as a chore to kind of get some spiritual allowance money? Are you wearied by the way you desire to love your neighbor and pursue justice but end up just tweeting about it and not doing anything? Are you wearied by the culture of complaints, anger, division that our world and that the church has embraced? Are you wearied by the habits of racism, abuse, exploitation of the poor that run rampant despite our culture's voiced hatred of all of those things? They actually continue to run rampant. Are you wearied by the same sins over and over again that you've committed to avoiding but simply fall into over and over again? Are you wearied by the endless scroll of information Disaster, violence, greed and turmoil. Are you wearied, by the way? You are told you must decide for yourself and determine your own reality and direction, and yet, all the time you're filled with conflicting thoughts, that we're actually not a very good guide to our own lives. Are you wearied by faking religious language and contentment in your prayers? If you're wearied by these things, I want to invite you to something far better. Jesus actually invites us into something far better. Now this argument of us reorienting our lives around Jesus is not primarily about how we change the world or about bringing the kingdom of God in greater experience and presence in our city or about radical acts of justice and mercy. I believe those things will come but only as a result of our true aim in this. The end of all of our Christian formation and life is God himself experiencing the presence of God coming to Jesus. And that's what he invites us to. So this morning, we're gonna look at just one short passage that kind of helps us understand the overarching goal of this series. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. In order for us to do this, coming to Jesus as a weary worshiper, we will need to take this yoke that he gives us upon ourselves and to carry his burden. Now, now what does that mean? Well, a yoke is a, a farming tool, right, that hitches two oxen together, and it was a way of moving and working. Not like, hey, here's this. What Jesus is not saying is, here's this additional task I'm giving you. What he's saying is, you're already doing this thing, living life and working in the world. I'm saying, instead of hitching yourself to anything else, hitch yourself to me, and I will carry the load. Right, the whole point of a yoke was to hitch a stronger ox to a weaker ox to be able to get more done. What Jesus is saying is, hitch yourself to me, and we will do this thing. Come to me in this. So what does that mean for us? Well, I want to make the argument, not just today, but throughout this sermon series, that we are the way we are formed is less about information, though certainly not devoid of information. Certainly we're going to give information and theological truths from the scripture, but our formation is less about information and less about emotional fervor, though it's not devoid of passion either, but more about practices of our worship, more about the rhythms and habits of our day and how we worship. That simply is called a liturgy. A liturgy is simply the practice of worship. So we have a liturgy that we run through every Sunday here at the church. If you have been here for a while, you know, and some of you have come from church traditions that are less liturgical or formal in their liturgy, they still have a liturgy. You can't not have a liturgy. It's, it, it's just an order of worship. It's just the way in which you do something. It's the practice of your worship. And so some of you have come from places that have maybe less order to those things, or some of you have come from places that have far more order to those things, but we do have a liturgy that we run through every Sunday. It's kind of the same every single Sunday, which is intentional. And what we're asking us to participate in is a daily liturgy a daily habit and rhythm of formation, a daily practice of worship, or in the words of Jesus, a yoke and a burden. The question for us is not whether we participate in a liturgy, but simply what kind of liturgy you're taking on. We're going to be arguing for a liturgy of Jesus that is expressed through this daily prayer project. Now, the way in which this liturgy is formed is not an exhaustive list of the practices of Jesus, but certainly a baseline starting point for us. So what I'm not saying is like these seven practices that we're gonna be walking through are the exhaustive way in which you walk with Jesus. Certainly not. But it's a baseline for us to start. So it's not exhaustive, but it is representative of the walk of Jesus. So today, what I wanna do is invite us into this way of Jesus, to worship for our weary souls by looking at the ways we operate in the world and contrasting that in the ways of in the way of Jesus. Because what we often do when we're wearied by our sin and the world is we look, we recognize something in the world that is wrong, and our solution ends up looking like adding an additional yoke or a burden. And then we jump back and forth from the liturgy that the world offers us and the liturgy that we've created of religion, and we jump back and forth between the two. Or we try and practice both at the same time, simply hoping that we get a little more religion than the world, right? This is what we do. We try to add to something rather than say, no, let's give up this way and embrace something better. So that's what we're going to be seeking to do. Now, the structure of this daily liturgy, as we'll walk through it, has a morning structure and an evening structure. Now, both of those things are not meant to be simply a quiet time that you're having with the Lord. Certainly, they're not less than that, but they're meant to be a training ground for how you walk in the world. Meaning that the parts of the liturgy are meant to train us in habits that will shape other habits in our life. Which is the same is true of our Sunday morning worship. This is meant to train us on how we function in the world the habits that we embrace here. And so hopefully we'll see some agreement in both. But the liturgy of Jesus that is represented in the Daily Prayer Project has seven parts to it. There's a call to worship, a psalm, adoration, lesson, prayer, abiding, and benediction. Now these seven parts, what we're going to do is uh, this morning, I'm gonna briefly explain these seven aspects of the liturgy And then we're going to focus an entire sermon on each one of these to unpack what does this thing mean and how do we practice it and how do we see it and form it based upon Scripture. All right? So that's what we're going to do this morning and the next few weeks. few is a three. It's going to be more than a few. So, buckle up. Uh, But to explain what it means today, what I want to do is contrast the liturgy of Jesus— with the liturgy of the world and the liturgy of religion. The way in which we bounce back and forth between what the world calls us to do and what we create in religion and what Jesus is calling us to. So first, the liturgy of Jesus starts with a call. Starts with a call from God, an invitation from God into worship. Now the liturgy of the world does not start with a call from God, but starts with autonomy. You are your own, so you are not invited into anything. You determine your own reality. You determine your own identity. This is fundamental to the way in which the world is functioning and shaping us today. And there are lots of habits that shape this for us. We have infinite exploration online right now. If you're bored right now, you could be searching anything you want on your phone right now. You have infinite possibilities at your fingertips all the time. That habit shapes you to be the determiner of your own reality, to be totally autonomous apart from God. Now, how how does that habit seep into our daily life? Well, how many of us start our day by grabbing our phone, jumping on social media, invited at the start of my day to enter a world custom-made by an algorithm to give me what I want or what someone else will profit by shaping what I want. We submit ourselves to this habit of seeing our lives as determined by the reality in which we want to shape it rather than being invited into worship of God. It's how we choose things in life, right? Our spouse, our job, our friends, our house, our church even, we talk about these things as what fits my needs and desires. Now, there's very good things to that in corrections to previous ages, which were driven only by... uh, depending upon where you were at and in different cultures, driven by either a a hyper-focus in how the community is developed, uh, sometimes to the deterrent of an individual, or how systems and structures and rulers and authorities drove those things. We certainly have more opportunity, and that is very, very good. But could it be that the world has shaped us and shifted it so far the other direction that we rarely think of anyone else when we make a decision. We think really about how it affects me and my needs and my desires. You see, at the very beginning of this liturgy of the world, which forms us to worship something, is a focus on ourselves. And the call to worship shows us to focus our ends are something else. God is actually calling us into worship so if we're not going to embrace the liturgy of the world we also must not embrace the antidote to that which is the liturgy of religion seeing God as a chore seeing coming to worship as a chore I perform for the purpose of receiving my spiritual allowance right this is really what we think about life right Oftentimes, we think about coming to worship and experiencing God in a way that is, functions way more like a chore, right? So if I didn't have my daily quiet time, I feel judgment upon myself. You know that there's nothing in the scriptures that says if you don't have a daily quiet time, you're not a Christian. Like there's no command to spend time in the word every day. Now, I'm clearly arguing that that's a good thing, right? We're clearly gonna get that. But we can't say, okay, the world is shaping us to be autonomous, to be apart from God. So let's bring down the hammer and spend time with God because that's not gonna work. We flip to the other extreme. We come to worship to get what we want. You see, actually, this is far, far more similar to the autonomy that the world offers us just with a religious spin, It's still about me getting what I want, right? I spend time with Jesus so that I don't feel guilty. I spend time with Jesus so that he answers my prayers. I spend time with Jesus so that my life goes well, right? We're seeing it as this chore in which I input certain things and God, you give me other things. And when you don't give me those other things, I'm really mad because I put in the work. I did my thing. Why are you not showing up? You see, we've taken this autonomous notion and we've put a religious spin on it and said, we can just simply use God as a chore to get the thing that I really want, which isn't God, but whatever it is for us individually. But the liturgy of Jesus is better. It's better. What does Jesus say? He says, come to me. Come to me. You see, the invitation starts with grace. The call to worship that we do every Sunday and that is a part of this daily prayer project is not simply a thing that we do in order for us to check off some box. It's to say the only reason you're here is because of God's grace. The only reason that we are entered into worship, the only reason that we as sinful, finite creatures, get to come into worship a holy, infinite God is because he has invited us to be there. The Heidelberg Catechism starts with this question, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong both body and soul to God. You see, in contrast to the way in which the world wants to shape you as being your own, the call to worship teaches you that you are not your own. You were made by an infinite, loving, holy God that you rebelled against, and yet also this infinite, loving, holy God came in the person of his son to take your sin upon himself and to die in your place facing the punishment that you deserve for your rebellion against God so that you can be forgiven and invited in with his perfect righteousness. All of that is packed into the call to worship. When God says, You can come and worship me, we should think about rehearsing the gospel because we are not worthy of entering into God's presence to worship him. And yet he says, No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you come from, no matter what the world says about you, you are invited to come. To worship me. Come to me. Particularly if you are feeling weary. The world will make you more and more weary. As it says you have infinite freedom, it actually chains you. It lies to you to say you have infinite freedom and choice, and yet it chains you to the reality of we're going to actually determine what we want you to think that you want you to be, right? That's how it works. And so instead, Jesus says, come to me. Here is where real freedom is found, in worshiping me. Second, the liturgy of Jesus moves to Psalm. Psalms are the language of scriptures for prayer, or the language of God, To God, right? This is Holy Spirit-inspired language that God has given us to pray back to him. It's honest, and it covers every area of life. Sometimes, if I were to pull out random parts of the Psalms to share with you, some of those things you'd be like, that's not appropriate to say to God. But it's in the Psalms, right? Because it's honest, and it covers every area of life. In contrast to this, the liturgy of the world in this present moment offers for us in every area of life the language of complaint. This is what Hunter talked about last week, so I won't hit this too hard, but this is exactly the language that is offered to us in the world to every area of life. Just think about your habits in this area. How often do you one-up one another in complaints, right? Someone's like, man, I had a hard day. Oh, you had a hard day? You have no idea the kind of day I had. Oh, you have a hard job? Let me tell you about my hard job. Oh, you have hard kids? Let me tell you about my hard kids. Oh, you think you have it hard? Let me tell you about how I have had, uh, what my experience has been. How many of us, Really talk in thankfulness to the good things in our life, our job, our station in life, whatever it is. Do you feel this tinge of guilt when you say, This thing that is happening in my life is really good? Sometimes we do. You know why? Because the world has shaped us to complain about everything. We have the culture of complaints. No one is ever satisfied. We're supposed to be in the happiest place on earth and no one's ever satisfied. Just go to Disney and watch people walk around, right? The happiest place on earth. People complain a lot. (laughs) Real mad about everything. This is supposed to be the happiest place on earth and everyone's complaining. Myself included. This is the language that the world offers us and we buy into it over and over again. Now, here's what we do to counteract that. We counteract that with the liturgy of religion being theater. Fake, performative language. We just fake it, right? That's what we do. Rather than complain about things, we just fake that everything's great. So outside of this space, we complain all the time. Inside of this space, everything's great, right? The habits that form us in this is little lies that we tell each other about how we're doing. We're not honest about how we're actually doing. The other habits that we have that shape this, is silence before God. Not silence that we're gonna talk about in a moment, like silence and solitude, waiting and listening on God. It's silence in not talking about hard things with God. Right, Hunter quoted me last week, but the difference between complaint and lament is simply the direction in which we are facing it. Lament is taking our complaints, and they might sound very (laughs) complainy, and putting them towards God. That's literally what lament is. But complaint is taking that to other people who can't actually do anything about it or complaining about God to other people by not mentioning him, not mentioning the good things he's done, not actually understanding the way in which the world operates. This is the way in which we enter in. So so I'm not saying, hey, the antidote to complaints is that we just talk about all good things. No, that's why the antidote is actually the liturgy of Jesus in embracing the Psalms. The liturgy of Jesus is better. The Psalms give us laments and praise. They give us thanksgiving and confession. They give us honest language to God. And so each day in this project, what we'll be doing is reading a psalm to set the tone for the day. And the hope is that that begins to train us to be honest about situations in our lives to God and others and not embrace a culture of complaints or a culture of fake performative language and theater, but embracing psalm. The third part of the liturgy of Jesus is adoration or worship. Within the Daily Prayer Project, you'll see that adoration is listed, worship in silence or in song. Sort of the two ends of the spectrum of worship. Silence before God and in song to God, which we'll talk lots more about as we get into this. But the liturgy of the world offers, instead of adoration, it offers us craving nothing in the world is worthy of true worship which is why our idols never satisfy money sex romance power you'll never have enough embracing them is like drinking salt water you're always thirsty and you need more to drink and as you drink more you get you thirstier and need more That's the liturgy that the world offers us of craving. What habits in our lives shape this? Well, certainly our habits around entertainment shape this. Literally everything in life now, in our culture, needs to be entertaining. Otherwise, it's not worthy of us entering into it. How often do we do real, serious thinking that doesn't include entertainment? Certainly the church has embraced this in many places, right? Where entertainment is the value by which we would communicate God's truth. Why? Because that's how all of us function in life. If something isn't interesting and entertaining, why would I engage in it? The other habit that shapes this craving is instant access to everything. We can microwave everything. Fast food everything. We can stream everything. Not just on my TV. You could be streaming on your phone right now, whatever you wanted. You could be watching Stranger Things right now. I have not watched it yet. Don't spoil it. Do not tell me anything. Not only streaming those things, we also get instant access to any knowledge anywhere. You can look up any fact anywhere. Anywhere. I would be hard-pressed to come up with something that you could Google that there wouldn't be a web page devoted to that very thing. Try it later. I don't think you can do it. When everything is at your fingertips, nothing is truly available. We have breadth, but no depth. That's what craving creates for us. And that's why none of us are ever satisfied. The world is never satisfied. And so we are constantly craving more and more. Well, the reality is, if craving is the only thing that the world can offer us, on the flip side, in the liturgy of religion, we offer to God noise. Empty words without heart and life transformation. What is... Amos tell us, this is God speaking to Israel. He says, I hate all your show and pretense. The hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice an endless river of righteous living. You see, what we offer instead in the liturgy of religion is praise to God without any real life transformation. Right? The world is offering us craving, never being satisfied. Drink this salt water. Keep going. Keep craving. The next thing will satisfy and the next thing will satisfy. And instead of actually seeking for worship, which transforms who we are and waiting on God, we try to microwave our worship to God and offer him noisy hymns without real life transformation. We try to offer to him our praise without actually doing anything to alleviate the suffering of the streets around us. We embrace a worship in words only. Or we embrace an entertainment style worship where we can't wait on the deep things of God. We're not content to wait on God. We have to only take the surface. So if whatever it is isn't satisfying enough or entertaining enough, we're done with it. If it challenges me to go any deeper in something, we're done with it. It's just noise. But the liturgy of Jesus is better. It offers to us adoration. Real worship, not craving, but experiencing the true and better, waiting on God in song and in silence, waiting on the deep things. You can't uh, microwave worship. We have to wait upon God. Fourth, the liturgy of Jesus offers us lesson. What Jesus says, right, is, whoops, that's not what I was meaning to do. Whoop, we're gonna go back. What Jesus says, nope, hit it too many times. What Jesus tells us is come to me, learn from me. He says, come to me and learn from me. And so this project moves into daily scripture reading to offer us wisdom from God's word for our lives. The liturgy of the world offers us pundits. That's how we receive our information. Think about it. How you receive your information in the world is through pundits. Whether they're celebrities or news, or science, or experts, whatever it is, it has to be someone with some level of influence, otherwise we wouldn't listen to it. Rather than actually entering into deep things on any given subject, we'll listen to the soundbite pundits and then actually enter into that. The habits of our culture train us in this all the time, right? Anyone can get a Twitter account, anyone can say anything, and anyone can retweet it. We're being trained not to think deeply about complicated issues with nuance and care, but to retweet pundits that say sound bites that get my tribe points and go against the other tribe. That's what we're doing. If you don't think that that will train you in how you approach God's word, you're kidding yourself. It will train you in how you approach God's word. A part you don't like, get rid of that. A part you love, retweet that. I'll focus on this thing that's really good and really that, that's, that's the thing that I love. This thing over here, that challenges me. Nope, I don't like that. We're gonna run away from that. Yeah. That's the way in which we think about things. We're formed by these habits looking to pundits who have charisma or have fancy video editing to help us think about things rather than thinking about deep things. We don't read books anymore. We read tweets, not even articles, just tweets, just 140 characters or 70, whatever it is now. That's all we can handle because we've been formed by a culture of pundits to actually shape how we think. Our social media usage, our celebrity culture, and the ability of both of those things to create a situation in which we can pick which experts we want to listen to to tell us the things that we already want to hear. An echo chamber in a self feedback loop. That's the way in which the world is being formed. Now, here's the thing to counter that, we cannot run to legalism. They can't counter this, we cannot say, no. Don't listen to anything ever in the world. There is no common grace. There is nothing you can learn from the world, and let's slip into fundamentalism, right? That's the counter to this pundit culture is slipping into fundamentalism and saying, no, don't learn anything from those people. Only learn from your Bible. Only learn from these things. And if you don't do that and you're listening to these things over here, feel lots of judgment, Right? The answer is not, guys, you're embracing all these pundits and you're doing this thing. How terrible you are. Feel judgment and shame. No. The answer is Jesus says, come to me and learn from me. Come to me and learn from me. For I am humble and gentle. The answer is, is the liturgy of Jesus, which is better, learning from Jesus, learning from God's word, right? This is where it is. Let me teach you, is what he says, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What we're hoping to do is enter deeply into God's word together so that we learn how to interact in the world and where to take from the world and listen and learn because there's lots to learn from common grace. God has made all people in every culture, every time, no matter who they are or how they voted or how they're your enemy, whatever it is, they're made in God's image. They are stamped with the glory of God. They can teach you something. They're stamped with God's image. Now, how do I know whether that thing that I'm learning from them is shaping me to become formed more like the world or more like Jesus? Well, you better know what Jesus says. The way in which we know those things is by learning from Jesus so that we can interact in the world in meaningful ways. So that we can think deeply about things with nuance and care. All of that means we have to be submitting ourselves to the scriptures all the time. Not because it's legalistic and if you don't do it, you're condemned. Because there's no command to do it but because the world is going to shape you. And if you don't want to be shaped to look like the world, you better be shaped to look like Jesus. You better listen to his word to be shaped by him. So we're going to learn from God's word. Fifth, the liturgy of Jesus moves us into prayer. We are moved from learning to confession and supplication and intercession, asking for God to act in the world. We want to ask God to act in the world. Sorry, I, I like put this up. It, it like echoed real. <laughs> Moved my water to my face too quickly. The liturgy of the world offers us, instead of prayer, it offers to us doom scrolling. You haven't heard of doom scrolling. It's the idea of seeing something terrible in the world and then just continuing to see more of it over and over again, just endlessly scrolling through these terrible things in the world. This habit is taking off. We have serious mental health crisis among people in our culture and particularly among young folks in our culture because of doom scrolling. Now, that's not the only thing. There's lots of other things. But this habit shapes us. It shapes us into thinking about all the things in the world constantly and the suffering of the world. You know that you were not created to know every individual piece of suffering across the globe. Never before in human history have you had the ability to know all human suffering on every part of the globe. And you were not made to handle that. You think you are. You know why? Because the culture of the world has said, you're totally autonomous and you can handle everything. The call to worship teaches us, no, we have a God who exists. You're not him. So you don't have to enter into that doom scrolling over and over and over again. Everything in our world is breaking news all the time. Everything. Like even something like not as meaningful to like terrible suffering in the world, like sports. It's constant breaking news. Like, oh my goodness, look at this. This guy got this source and I broke it before that guy, right? That's probably the reason Tom Brady retired and then came out of retirement because they had a source and they broke it and then uh, he came back, right? Like we're constantly trying to get ahead and get the information out quicker, In every area of life, slow down. It's okay. It's okay. There is a God on the throne who knows every blade of grass on this planet, every hair on your head, and every star in the galaxy. He knows everything, and he can handle it. You can't, so don't try to. The liturgy of religion encountering this doom scrolling is one of Babel. This comes from a Matthew passage in which Jesus says, When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly in, on the street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. This is sometimes how we counter this doom scrolling and way in which the world works, right? Is to so emphasize, I will be the first one to tweet my prayers about this suffering. Everyone has to know that I'm praying. Everyone know that I care. I'm praying. Jesus says, that's your reward. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you and pray to your father in private. Then your father who sees everything will reward you. In the new heavens and new earth, the rewards of prayer are going to be from people you have never heard of. The most powerful people on the planet are people you don't know who spend their life in private prayer to God. God is shaping the world By those people's prayers, not by us tweeting about prayer. I think I'm kind of trying to convince myself to get off Twitter in this sermon. Because I keep saying it. When you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need, even before you ask Him. See, what we do to counter this is to get this great religious language. If I could just have the right prayer, if I could just say the right things, if I could just do this thing properly, then God will answer. And the reason he's not answering is probably because I said the wrong thing or did the wrong thing or or didn't do this thing. That's babble. God knows you. Talk to him in private. God knows you. You don't have to post about your quiet time on Instagram. A picture of it, like it didn't happen if I don't do it, right? It's just babble. The prayer of Jesus is better because it's prayer that leads to action, right? You know that when Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into his field, you know what the very next thing Jesus does is? He sends out 72, into the field to go share the gospel. The very people that were praying for that thing to happen, Jesus said, pray for this. Then he said, oh, by the way, you're going to answer that prayer. So real prayer is not meaningless. It leads to very real action. So don't pray in this real way unless you're ready to be the answer to that prayer. That's what Jesus tells us, right? Count the cost of the kingdom. If you're ready to be the answer to that prayer, then start asking for it. If you're not ready to be the answer to that prayer, then maybe deal with that first with the Lord, right? Because he's gonna send us into that thing. Real prayer is honest before God and just speaking to him like he's your father, the good father who loves you. Some of us have had bad earthly fathers that have given us this impression that we can't go and speak to God. God is not like that. He loves you. I I need to mention that my father's here and I didn't, that wasn't like a, oh, I have this terrible earthly father, right? Like, it was just a random thought that I had not to, not to, you know, demean you, Dad. So uh, that's not, that's not the case. You taught me well that I can come speak to my father in heaven. Six, the liturgy of Jesus moves us to abiding. This is the sweet spot of communion with God. This is the feast that we're all going towards, sweet communion with God. The liturgy of the world offers instead consumption. The feast of our culture is to consume. Greed, always maximizing profit and salary. Lust, we have a culture of consent only meaning if you have a desire, you should act on it, consume. We have this habit of acting on every desire that we have. We have a habits of envy, comparison to one another. In counter to a culture and liturgy of consumption, we have a liturgy of judgment. Rather than consume, we just simply are going to judge everyone else who consumes or judge ourselves when we participate. We're going to judge. If shame is your motivator for walking with Jesus, it's not going to go well. Shame is a terrible motivator. It will get you to do lots of things for God but not experience deep abiding with him. So we give judgment to others and ourselves. But the liturgy of Jesus is better. It's abiding in Jesus, abiding in God's love, abiding in God's commandments, and abiding in God's joy. Deep connection and communion with God. It's why we do the Lord's Supper every week. This is abiding with Jesus. This should be the high point of our experience together. And the high point of the experience of this daily liturgy is getting to this abiding peace in which you are spending deep fellowship with God. Finally, the liturgy of Jesus moves us to benediction. Benediction, being sent out with God's grace. The liturgy of the world offers us scrolling, which is similar to doom scrolling, but just scrolling in every area of life. The reality is, in our culture, the liturgy of our world says there's never an end to anything. There's never morning and evening. Everything's 24-7. We have no rest or Sabbath. We're constant scrolling. You can literally find endless amounts of entertainment and education and information at all hours of all days for all of time. You were not made for that. You were made to rest, to put an end to your day, to put a benediction on your day. The liturgy of religion offers us the opposite, which is performance. Being sent out by God to work hard for him, to perform for him. You see, a benediction is ascending in grace. A performance says, now you heard all this stuff, you better go do it. A habit of this that shapes this for us is the way in which we talk about our walk with God. If we talk about our walk with God in relation to whether we had a quiet time or not, or what kind of service we're doing for the church or not, or what kind of sin we're avoiding or not, that's all performance-based. It's all performance-based. So often when we talk to each other about how we're loving Jesus, It's like, well, I didn't sin in this way this week, which I tell people all the time. That's like asking a husband, how is your relationship with your wife? And him saying, well, I didn't hit her this week. That's not a good standard for love, but that's how we talk about our relationship with Jesus all the time. Well, I didn't really screw it up this week. Well, no, 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 no. That's performance. He loves you. Are you experiencing deep abiding with him? Are you experiencing his grace? That's benediction. The liturgy of Jesus is better because it has rhythm, morning and evening. It has rest and limits. And when God tells us to go, he goes with us. God goes with us on mission because the mission is getting God. If the mission was just doing things for God, He'd do it a lot better and a lot quicker, guys. The mission is getting God. So I want to read this passage one more time to us in light of these things. Then Jesus said, "'Come to me, all of you who are weary "'and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. "'Take my yoke upon you. "'Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, "'and you will find rest for your souls. "'For my yoke is easy to bear.'" and the burden I give you is light. Friends, together we're going to walk in this light burden of Jesus, this easy yoke of Jesus, to experience more and more of God's presence. Let's commit to doing that together. Let's pray. Father God, we need your grace. We thank you that you invite us into worship, that this is grace from start to finish. From call to worship to benediction, it is all of grace. You are the only one who can transform. So God, we submit ourselves to you and ask you to show up in mighty ways for the sake of your glory and honor that we would deeply abide in you. That we would experience deep fellowship and communion with you. pray this in Christ's name. Amen.